Good morning, everyone. As you can see on the screen, the Bible reading this morning uh, is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27, uh, and chapter 9 to 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up with me and then I'll read it for us. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered them, uh, answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever, um, sorry, whoever loses his life for, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole wide world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of, the, of, uh, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it was, it was come with power. Well, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Tony, and I'm also one of the team here, and I get to open um, God's Word with us today, uh, which is a great privilege uh, for me to do. Um, I'm sure many of you this week uh, saw the events uh, surrounding what you might call the 24-hour CEO, Um, that being Andrew Thorburn. He was the CEO of the Essendon Football Club uh, for around uh, 24 hours. Maybe you haven't heard about it. Uh, He was appointed and then 24 hours later he resigned uh, based on a disconnect, apparently, between the values of the Essendon Football Club and his values as a Christian, which are, by the way, mainstream, or fairly mainstream and orthodox Christian views. Uh, Backed by the Victorian Premier, Essendon parted ways with Andrew Thorburn, basically due to his mainstream orthodox Christian views, and particularly around sexuality and around abortion. And so it would seem, if you follow the trajectory, that if you hold... Such views, that is mainstream Christian views, uh, you may no longer be able to work in certain places or hold certain positions. 
Uh, Andrew is the chair of Melbourne Church City on a Hill, and City on Hill are actually doing a fantastic job uh, as a church. They've planted multiple churches. Uh, they're a gospel-centred, Bible-believing church. Uh, in fact, we have many friends uh, who know guys there, uh, even the guy uh, who's the lead pastor who was on, uh, I think, Sunrise or something during the week. Uh, we would consider them partners in the gospel. Um, so in many ways, they're no different to us. And I suppose the, the obvious question then is, who's next? Who's next? Um, I found it particularly interesting uh, that how uh, Andrew Thorburn's character and integrity um, obviously really stood out throughout this week. Uh, just a little note for us there, it's really important for us as we seek to live for Jesus wherever he's placed us, to have good character and integrity. Clearly, this guy had it. He was uh, the CEO of uh, the National Australia Bank, so a fairly prof- high-profile position, and had a good reputation as a leader uh, of uh, people. Um, I actually found it particularly interesting that uh, one of the person, people that had a little bit of difficulty putting together what was happening to him, but also his character, was uh, none less than Gillian McLaughlin, the CEO of the AFL. Uh, he, was, he said some really nice things about Andrew, actually. He said, I know him personally. I consider him a friend. He's a man of high integrity. He's an excellent leader, and so on. And then he said, but sometimes you know, values of organisations and values of indiv- individuals don't meet up. And so, you know, they parted ways. But the question really does come, doesn't it, is uh, who's next? Or perhaps what's next? Uh, the, tra- the trajectory, if you're looking at it, you probably think, ah, it doesn't look too good as to where we may be heading. And I suppose the other question that we want to ask ourselves this morning is this, how do such events impact us in terms of our boldness as followers of Jesus? Does such an event like this kind of cause us to keep our heads down a bit, either consciously out of a choice that we make or subconsciously just out of the pressure we feel. Uh, is that what we should do? Kind of, you know, just keep our heads down. Maybe, yeah, maybe we should uh, kind of, you know, retreat into a holy huddle of people who believe and think the same things as us and never engage with uh, the wider community in trying to reach them. Maybe that's what we should do. As a result, well, I think you're sitting there going, no, Tony, that's definitely not what we should do. And it's not what Jesus calls us to. So what does boldness look like? How do we continue to be bold in living and speaking for Jesus in our community, in our culture, in our society, wherever he has placed us? And that, friends, is the reason that we've been doing this series called Bold. Bold is focusing on big truths in God's word that will help us daily to live for Jesus and to speak for Jesus wherever he's placed us. Truths that will give us the spine, if you like, that we need to do that wherever he has us. Uh, We're in week three of five weeks. We've looked at firstly week one, the reality of heaven and hell, the beauty of heaven. And the gravity of hell. And last week we looked at the love of God. The love of God, not only to us, but to his world in the sending of his son. And this week 
we're going to look at the cross, the reality of the cross of Jesus. How does the cross make us bold? How does the cross stop us from just putting our heads down? How does the cross make us bold to keep putting ourselves out there even if there's flack, no matter the cost? That's what we're looking at this morning and primarily from Mark chapter 8. So it'd be great if you had your Bible open and if you kept it there and followed through so that you can see uh, what we're looking at and what we're seeing this morning in God's word. Uh, But before we dive in, we're going to pray um, because we need his help. Father, thank you so much that we can come this morning to your word. We can come and seek your help when when things happen in and around our lives that may, uh, yeah, disturb us, may give us cause for concern. Maybe some of us here this morning have watched the news this week and the unfolding events and maybe some of us feel upset, maybe even angry. Maybe some of us feel fearful. Maybe others of us feel discouraged about living for Jesus. Maybe even some of us might have a touch of despair. Father, we want to acknowledge that none of these things are new. Even as we went through the book of Acts, we saw hostility towards you, hostility towards your son, hostility towards the message of the gospel, opposition to your people. But we also saw the advance of your gospel. So, Father, help us this morning as we... Look at this passage together and tease out some implications for us. Please encourage us. Please embolden us. Please strengthen us for your glory and for our good as we seek to live for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through that reading first, just kind of work our way through it and unpack it a bit and then look at some key points at the end. So Mark chapter 8 and particularly verse 27 Uh, through to verse, I think, 38. Uh, If you know Mark's gospel, then you know that it's made up of two halves. First half, chapters 1 to 8, is the first three years of Jesus' life. Everything he did once he started his ministry right up until uh, he headed toward the cross. All the miracles, all the teachings, and so on. That's the first half, the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. The second eight chapters, chapter 9 through verse 16, is the last week of Jesus' life, which tells you the author thinks the last week of Jesus' life is fairly important. So there you go. If you want to go and read Mark's Gospel, there's a good foundation underneath it. The first half reveals who Jesus is as the Christ, that he is God's Messiah, that he is God's King come into the world to bring and establish the kingdom of God. The second half tells us what Jesus as the Messiah has come to do. That is, what kind of Messiah he will be. And so as we come to chapter 8, we're actually at the hinge point in Mark's Gospel, smack in the middle of those two halves. And Jesus asks his disciples at this vital point, having revealed who he is through his life and ministry, who do people say that I am? You know, what's, what are the conclusions that people have arrived at having seen what I've done and having heard what I've said, what are people saying? Uh, some say uh, Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the more very pertinent and personal question which we all need to answer, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Uh, Peter uh, comes up 
top of the class, at least at this point, not always top of the class, but here, top of the class, he nails it. He says, you are the Christ. You are the promised one. You are the one we've been waiting for, the one that we knew God would send. I have, no, I have seen and I've concluded that that Christ is you. And you think about it, given all that Peter's seen Jesus do, given all that he's heard him say, his powerful words, his miraculous works, he does things that only God can do. Peter is clear who Jesus is. He is Messiah. He is Christ. But as we will see, though, he's clear that Jesus is Messiah. He's not at all clear what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. Verse 31, uh, Jesus goes on to say to them, I'm I'm looking at this page thinking this does not look right. It's because I'm Luke chapter 8, not Mark chapter 8. There we go. That's much better. (laughs) Always helps if you've got the right gospel. Uh, Verse 31, Jesus then begins to teach them, having been identified as the Christ, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days rise again. Jesus reveals precisely what kind of Messiah he's going to be. For him, the work of Messiah will mean the cross. It will mean suffering. It will mean rejection. It will mean death by crucifixion and then resurrection three days later. Peter can't come to terms with this in verse 32. Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took Jesus aside, not top of the class anymore, and began to rebuke him for what he had just said. Peter's struggling with this concept of the cross and the Messiah. How do those two things come together? And it's not hard. You know, sometimes we're a bit tough on poor old Peter, but... You know, put yourself in his sandals for a few minutes and maybe you can see why he's struggling. His expectations of the Messiah weren't matching up. He was expecting a King David type person to come in power and overthrow whatever empire was oppressing the people of God. He was expecting a David-like figure to ride in to Jerusalem perhaps uh, with an army and establish the kingdom of Israel all over again. He was expecting a warrior king to bring deliverance. That's his expectations of Messiah, not to mention his experiences of Jesus. He's seen him do astonishing things. He's seen him calming the sea. He's seen him healing the sick and the lame. He's seen him casting out demons. He's seen him feeding thousands out of just a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread. He's even seen him raise the dead. And now Jesus says this, for the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed and on the third day rise again. So you know, don't be too hard on Peter. Peter's like, no way, how how is that even possible? Verse 33, Jesus turns and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pretty strong rebuke, don't you think? Why though? Because Peter's thinking is merely human. It's merely human. And in this, Satan is again tempting Jesus with a crown that doesn't involve a cross. He's done it before, he's doing it again. Saying, oh, you don't need to go to the cross, let's just bypass that. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. 
And so Jesus will have none of it. Get behind me, Satan. He will not be deterred from the cross, which also tells us something, doesn't it? Verse 34 and verse 35, Jesus calls the crowd and his disciples and says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus announces that salvation is actually found in him, in crucifying, as it were, our old lives, dying to whatever they were and the priorities they had and then looking to Jesus to shape and save us. He calls us to turn away from living for ourselves and all this world has to offer and to give our lives to him and as a result of doing that to find true and eternal life. And then Jesus makes this profound statement, doesn't he, that's echoed down through history. You see it there in verse 36 and verse 37? But what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or what can a man or a woman give in exchange for their soul? It's a profound statement, isn't it, if you just unpack it for a minute? I don't know, I don't know whether you've ever done a cost-benefit analysis, whether you've been looking at doing something and you think, I need to do a, a cost-benefit analysis. It's kind of like that. On the one hand, if I gain everything that the world has to offer, literally everything, and you can let your imagination run wild there, right? What you, all the dreams that you've ever dreamt of having, it's all yours and 50 times more. Everything, all the gold, all the oil, all that the world has to offer, all the riches, all the wealth, all the fame, all the acclaim, anything, all that the world has to offer. If you gain all of that, you're the most popular person ever. If you can have that, which is everything we kind of often strive for, right? What does it gain on the one side if you have all of that and lose your soul eternity and then he follows up with and what can a person give in exchange for their soul well nothing because your soul is worth so much now again remember this is the turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus and the cross is starting to come into view And it's where we get to see the very heart of God. The very heart of God. I've got a new clip on my mic and as you can see it's not working very well. So, these are the things as we narrow in on this, which we're going to now, that will fill us with boldness. And I want us to see two things from this passage this morning that help us there. Firstly, the priority of the cross. Though everyone wanted to set Jesus' priorities for him, clearly he had his own. He had his own. Peter wanted Jesus to be a certain way. The religious leaders had a template into which Jesus needed to fit if they were going to accept him and welcome him. Perhaps we are not that different sometimes. We kind of, you know things we think Jesus should prioritise that he doesn't seem to be. 
But Jesus is crystal clear what his priority is and he will not be deterred from it. I'm going to go to a hand mic. Am I good? Yeah, that's better. At least I can control this one. Sort of. Jesus is crystal clear about his priorities and he will not be diverted from it. Notice again verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer, he says. The Son of Man must suffer. The critical word there is the word must. And it's from the Greek word dei, D-E-I, which simply means it is necessary. It is necessary that the Son of Man must suffer, which highlights for us the unfolding plan of God. God has a plan that he's bringing to fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a plan of salvation. And the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is at its heart. It's central to it. And therefore it must happen. It's necessary that it happens. And don't miss who it is who is suffering here. Notice the title uses for him, Jesus uses for himself. He does it deliberately. He uses this title primarily through the Gospels. What's the title? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Who's that? Aren't we all, in one sense, sons of men, daughters of men? What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, he's referring very deliberately to Daniel chapter 7. Way back in the Old Testament, Daniel's given this vision. And this is just part of it. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven. So we're in this kind of heavenly realm. Uh, A little bit before this, we see God on his throne. I saw with the clouds of heaven there come one like a son of man. To the ancient of days, which is God the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and language should serve him or worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see who it is? It's God the Son. He receives worship. He comes to the Father and he's given an eternal kingdom. And that is the title Jesus uses for himself in the Gospels. And so if you put those two things together, the Son of Man must suffer. Oh, my goodness. The Son of Man must suffer. And according to Jesus in verse 33, this is the things of God. This is what God is doing. This is God's plan. So think about it for a second. If that's the priority, because Jesus could do pretty much anything, right? He could empty every hospital, calm every storm, feed everyone who is hungry. If he can do all those things, then why the priority of the cross? Because all of those other things are needs, right? Genuine needs, real needs. Why the priority of the cross? Well, because Jesus came to address humanity's deepest need. 
humanity's greatest need, the need for forgiveness, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness from God. Jesus came into the world to bring about right relationship with God, to make us right with him. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst or the foremost. The cross is the priority because the cross is for our salvation and for the salvation of others. At the cross, Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. At the cross, God poured out his justice for our sin on him so that we might be saved. At the cross, Paul tells us, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Son of Man must suffer, Jesus says, for you as you sit here today, for me as I stand here today, and for others all around us. So the logic is clear as we see this. The cross, the suffering Son of Man, is a window into the heart of God for us as sinners. If the cross is at the heart of God's plan, then salvation is at the center of his purposes. Your salvation, my salvation, and the salvation of all who will turn to him and put their trust in him. The cross, friends, glorifies our God and shows us how great he is and how kind he is. The, the logic is also clear because if the cross addresses our deepest need, then we can know forgiveness with God. We can know forgiveness with God, forgiveness of all our sins, the thoughts that we wished we'd never thought, the actions that we wished we'd never done, the words that we wished we could take back, the lusts that we've desired that we shouldn't have, the idols that we've bowed down in, in order trying to find life in instead of in God. All of those sins can be forgiven because the Son of Man suffered on our behalf. Forgiveness from God and peace with God can be ours. So we can be bold in our relationship with God, enjoying Him, worshipping Him, not shrinking away from Him, but coming to Him, which is what Hebrews uh, 10 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to what? Enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Confidence? Boldness, another translation says. We have boldness in our relationship with God, not because of what you and I have done, but because the Son of Man suffered because of what he has done. 
the logic is also clear, not just for you and for me, but for others. Because if the cross addresses humanity's deepest need, others who live around us get this. And maybe this needs to land for us a bit more. We can legitimately offer forgiveness from God to others through Jesus. You've heard of over-promising and under-delivering, right? This is not that. In the gospel, we can hold out genuinely and legitimately forgiveness from Almighty God to people through Jesus. That is mind-blowing. That's why Paul calls us his ambassadors, representing him. And that's the way in which we can can representative we in that process we can give testimony to it and that is our own experience of forgiveness from god and we should and we can we can show people the joy that we have because of it and we should that jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves we can generally offer people something that no one else can And again, this should make us bold because it's totally unique. Our message, friends, is not good advice. We don't need to go around telling people uh, good things that they should do to improve their life. No, our message is not good advice. Our message is good news. It's not advice for them to do. It's news of what another has done for them. And it's unique. There literally is nothing else like it. All other philosophies, all other religions, you could probably put them in the category of advice. You need to do this. You need to do that. Our message is Jesus has done this. So different. This is what the priority of the cross in the life of Jesus shows us. And it should increase our joy and bolster our courage as we live for him. So that's the priority of the cross. Second thing, the expectation of the cross. And that's this idea. Uh, That if God went to this extent, if the Son of Man must suffer, and if he did, then it stands to reason that people will be saved as a result. Doesn't it? People will repent and believe. Don't tell me Jesus went to the cross for nothing. The cross wasn't wishful thinking. I'll do this in the hope that someone might be saved. No, no, no. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew precisely what he was achieving. And so the expectation of the cross is that people will be saved through it, which ought to embolden us to tell people about it. Have a listen again to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand 
or the right, yeah, right hand of the throne of God. Notice that little phrase there, who for the joy set before him. What joy? What's the writer of Hebrews talking about? Friends, it's the joy of the glory of God in the salvation of sinners like you and me. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sins in his own body on the tree, dying in our place with an eye clearly on those who one day would stand around the throne, those he had redeemed, those who have repented and believed, that vast number that we see in Revelation who from every tribe, nation, language and tongue that you can't count, the crowd is so big. For the joy of that, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the expectation of the cross in Jesus himself? That as he dies, people, he dies knowing that people will be saved through what he is doing. Now, perhaps this is a bit hard to get, around, get our head around, but we do know this in other ways. Uh, the mums among us particularly know this concept when it comes to giving birth and enduring labour. Uh, from my humble vantage point, it doesn't look very pleasant, to put it lightly. It doesn't look like a lot of fun. It looks hard. It looks painful. It looks like something you've got to endure. Why go through it? Why endure it? Because of the joyful expectation of holding a little one in your arms that you've just received as a gift from God. Because people do it again, not just once. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising its shame. The expectation of the cross is that people will be saved for the joy of seeing you around the throne. Jesus endured the cross for that joy, for the joy of seeing others, for the joy of seeing those who haven't yet heard of the message of the cross and haven't yet repented and believed. For that joy, Jesus endured the cross. You see, this not only brings us in, but it also sends us out because still others need to hear. Others that he was thinking of when he endured the cross. Notice, friends, that the gospel is not just good news. The message of the cross is not just good news. It's also powerful news. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is what? It is the power of God. What is? The word of the cross. The expectation is that as the word of the cross gets shared more widely and more widely and more widely, some will think it's foolishness, but others will experience it as the power of God. 
So notice what this means in terms of our boldness. It means that we can share the message of the cross with confidence. Because it is the power of God through which people will be saved. And with the confident expectation that if we do that, some will be. Some will be. That might just push us over the line, right? To plucking up the courage to say something about Jesus and his death for us. Or God's purpose in it. Or forgiveness from God that's available. It might just push us over the line if we had some sense that someone might actually be converted if we do that. Someone actually might come into relationship with God if we do that. It means also that we must share the message of the cross. We must share it. If we want to see people saved, we must find ways of getting them to the cross. Nothing else has the power of God to save. Nothing. Certainly not our ideas, not our opinions on things. Certainly not our moralistic superiority. That's not going to do it. What's going to see people saved? The word of the cross. What's going to see our children come up to love and serve Jesus with their lives? The word of the cross, the message of the cross, the reality of the cross. Sharing that with them each and every opportunity we get. Yes, we need to discipline them. Yes, we need to train them in other ways. But we must share with them the cross. And we must share it with them as people who also need the cross. And demonstrate that to them, that we are sinners like them who need a saviour, and we have one. If you read a parenting book and there isn't a chapter on telling your children about the death of Jesus for them, chuck it in the bin. That's how central and important this is. Or at least maybe read it critically. Maybe you're not as, you know, Drastic as that. Notice also that it means that people's salvation is not ultimately up to us. Paul writes, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Being saved by who? By God. It's God who saves people through the message of the cross. Not you, not me. Which takes the pressure off a bit, right? If you think about parenting, which I've just given a fairly strong plug, uh, it takes the pressure off as parents. God's, but we have a part to play. And we see our part clearly. To spread the word of the cross. And to get the message out. Friends, that's why we've signed up with Reach Australia. That's the reason we've signed up on this leadership development program that they're going to help us. They're going to come in 6th of November, which is about four weeks, I think, today. Two or three from their team. They've got all sorts of information from us or getting that in the next few days. And they're going to spend some time with us and 
look at what we're doing and what the focuses are that we're on and they're going to humbly come among us and just help us. So why would we do that? Well, because we want to spread the message of the word of the cross more in our region and we don't have all the answers. Neither do they, but let's put theirs and ours together and see what we come up with. One final thing as we, as we finish. It's not only Jesus who was called to endure hardship for the joy set before him. It's not only Jesus. We are also called to do the same. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's what gave him strength to suffer, in fact. That joy. If we can see the joy of others being saved more and more, there's a good chance we'll endure suffering for that to happen. There's a good chance that we'll be courageous enough to put ourselves in the firing line if it means people are going to be saved. May the glory of God in the salvation of others become something that is pure joy to us so that we might do that. Let me remind you of our vision as we close. I hope you can see how it connects with what we've been talking about this morning. What's our vision here at GBC? We see people, that's us and others, joyfully advancing the gospel no matter the cost. What for? For the salvation of others in our region and beyond. To what primary purpose? To the glory of and praise of God.